please be seated. And the book of Luke today, chapter 1. Luke chapter number 1. I think I've had the opportunity over the past years, it seems like seven, many times more than I ever thought I would, to be involved in military services, which I find kind of ironic because I've never been in the military. <laughs> but um, but I, I always feel, I think that there, people need to understand, as great as the sacrifice that our uh, veterans have made, the greater sacrifice is that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I never... I don't know how many more opportunities I'll get. They might, they might get the, they might get the picture that I'm not just going to talk about the military, but I always, and I want to talk about Christ. And and at that healing, the wall that heals thing a couple of months ago, I had the chance they actually asked me to speak, and you know, so I gave the had the opportunity to really present Jesus Christ and and everything like that, and praise the Lord for it, and uh, because um, He is the one, He is the one, Jesus Christ is the one. That needs all the attention, all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. And of course, if a military person was saved, then that's even a greater honor because they knew Christ as Savior. Um, and so, uh, if you're—I know there's a lot of some people that are really interested in history, um, the things of our country and other countries, and that. And so, in the Book of Luke, there's a lot of history, um, a lot of history, a lot of prophecy, um, blessed history. And here in chapter one today. We're really just starting to get into the the book of Luke and the teaching of it. Um, last week we just got started in the first four verses, kind of the introduction to Luke, and also um, presented to you the differences of em- emphasis between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that Luke emphasizes the the humanity of Christ, that Christ as a man, so the Son of Man. And we'll look into some of those things and, and try to um, look at the things as they're presented in the book of Luke. Now today we're going to start looking at the prophecy concerning the birth of John the Baptist. And so there's a lot of other things that are going to be mentioned that Luke writes about John. So we'll kind of allow those as they unfold in the book of Luke. So to get started, by, by way of reduction, let's start in verse number 5. And let's just read verses 5, 6, and 7 to kind of give you the setting of what's taking place here at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Luke 1, verse 5, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren, and they, were, they both were now well stricken in years. Well, let's stop right there, and let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank thee so much for the word of God. Thank you for the truth of it. We thank thee again for the power of it. Pray that thou would help us by the Holy Spirit as we go into these great verses this morning and, and get a glimpse of how, Father, you began to intervene in Israel at the appointed time. Guide us by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 
verses 5 through 7 kind of give us the background, kind of give us the setting uh, for what God is going to do. And uh, one of the things about the Word of God and and the Gospels, and and, and these are the first couple chapters of the book of Luke, is we're going to see God intervening. And God sometimes steps in to our world and, in a good way, interrupts everything. And we thank God for that. And we need to remember, we, get, we kind of get the idea, and of course the world gets the idea that things just kind of go along, go along, go along. And what we know in life, we're always going to know, and everything's going to be the same. And, you know, Second Peter chapter 3, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Well, God sometimes has and, and will in the future. God steps in in a mighty way to let people know that He is still there. Um, he is still on the throne, and He is still in control. He holds the key to all the events of history. And so, the case here, I find it interesting, significant, that verse 5, uh, t- the first few words give us a, a good idea of what things were like in Judah, or as it's in, in the New Testament, referred to as Judea. Notice it says, there was in the days of Herod the king. So that tells us quite a bit about what was going on there. Um, It was during those days that the God of heaven began to intervene as he has done at times throughout history. Uh, Two great prophecies are given in Luke 1. Both of them were about very soon to be fulfilled. Within about a year, both of them would be fulfilled. And of course, that's the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus Christ. Two very significant births, two supernatural births, and we'll let that again. We'll let that unfold more um, as we go through. And so this morning we'll take a look. Message number one of the prophecy of the birth of John the Baptist. And so, uh, num- first number one this morning, look at the people involved. I'm talking about the characters that are mentioned here. In Luke chapter 1, verse 5, there was in the days of Herod the king of Judea. And Herod was this king that was, is Herod, is also the one who was there when Christ was born. He is the one who tried to have Jesus killed. Um, He ruled for about 45 years, starting in about 40 BC and up until the time of the Lord's birth. And because of the calendars and things, the Lord's birth is actually put about 4 BC. But he was the king there. So we know that um, he was a wicked man. He executed some of his own family members because he thought they were a threat to his throne and all that sort of thing. Um, and Herod was never, you know, he was, he was appointed by the Roman emperor to be king of Judea. So he caused a lot of problems for, for the people of Judah during those days. Now, so that's one fella. Then secondly, and here's the, here are the good guys, if you will, Uh, There was a certain priest, it says also in verse 5, a certain priest named Zacharias. Now, Zachariah, Zacharias, as you see it there, um, that is the New Testament spelling for the Old Testament, Zechariah. So that that name, the famous prophet of the Old Testament, um, had the same name. Notice that, and he was of the course of, of Abiah, or again the Old Testament name would be Abijah. And that in itself says a lot 
about this man, Zacharias. Now certain Levites, some in the Old Testament were only allowed to serve until they were 50 years old and then they had to step down and they could do other things, but not, not true of these particular, of these special priests. Um, you, may, you may remember, we're not going to take a whole lot of time here, but back in, in the Old Testament day, there were 24 courses, a certain part of the Jewish priesthood, and they had certain responsibilities in the temple. And we're going to see what Zacharias's was here in just a moment. But this is a very, very special class of priests. Very few ever got to be in that position. And I read from a historian, Bible historian, who mentioned that in the days of Zacharias, there may have been, throughout Israel, as many as 18,000 priests. Right? And so there was the high priest, and there were the chief priests, there was all these others, but none of them had the privilege, or not many of them, had the privilege of Zacharias to be of that, the course of Abijah, have these special duties. So he was, a, he was a godly man, and the Bible tells us that here in just a moment. But notice also it says his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So by, this is proper. Um, one of the requirements of priests, that they, and they didn't always follow this, and that's what got him in trouble. One of the requirements of priests was that they had their, they, the priests had to be a descendant of Aaron, and so did his wife. And so they would have been way, way distant relatives. You know, the family of Aaron branched out. But so this is in here to, to, for, for, so we understand that with all the darkness and all the wickedness that was going on, all the iniquity that was going on in Israel and in Judah, here was a, here was a couple, an older couple, yes, but here was a couple who were still following the ways of the Lord. And whenever I read names like that, it reminds me of the promise God gave back in Isaiah and also to Jeremiah that there would always be a remnant of faithful men and women of God throughout Israel's history. And then Paul picked up on that theme in Romans 11. There's a remnant today in his day. There's a remnant in our day. And there will always be a remnant until Jesus comes and really restores the nation of Israel. So here's two, here's a man and his wife, Zacharias and Elizabeth, that were part of that godly remnant. Now, look at what it says in verse 6 about them. And they were both righteous before who? Before God. Right? Not before men. There's a lot, there's a lot like that. But righteous before God. And the word righteous really is just simply translates doing right. They did right. But they did it before God. In other words, their, their lives, it wasn't just a ritual for them. It wasn't just something that they did because it was required of them. They did everything for the glory of God. That's the idea in the sight of God and for His glory. So their lives were open. They were not hypocrites in any way, which would indeed set them apart from many of the priests and scribes and Pharisees that will later come across in the book of Luke, the ones that gave John the Baptist, the ones that gave Jesus, the ones that gave his disciples, the ones that gave every righteous person trouble in their life. 
Zacharias and Elizabeth were not like that. They were not hypocrites. They were sincere. They were righteous. They were godly. They were devoted to the Lord. Notice what it says. It kind of, here's, here's how it's described in verse 6. It goes on to say, walking. And the word walking there is, talks about daily conduct. It doesn't just mean when he was doing his duty. All right? But walking, notice it says, in all the commandments, all right, God's commandments, thou shalt and thou shalt not. They were doing those, but they also were walking in the ordinance of the Lord, the things God required in order to do right. Now with Zacharias, it certainly would have included his priestly duties, but it was more than that. It was his life. So we could say that both this man and his wife walked with God. They walked in the ways of the Lord. Now the Bible says this, they walked walking in all the commandments, notice all, and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Now they were blameless. And the word blameless appears in the New Testament a few times applying to God's people. First of all, we need to understand, I'm sure you do, that blameless does not mean sinless. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. So they were not perfect and sinless in that regard. But the word blameless is a really precious word, an interesting word. It means above reproach. It means no grounds for accusation. So not sinless, but blameless. And so uh, faultless as far as their lives before God. And yet there was more than that. The fact that they understood the need for personal trust and faith in the Lord, not just in the rituals, not just in the things that they did. You know, their trust was in God. And so they were obviously had, would be known in the temple and throughout Jerusalem and there as being righteous, as being a godly couple. So they were blameless. And, and so that's, that's a great example for us. So the Bible tells us that we should be blameless. In Philippians chapter 2, that you may be har- blameless and harmless. Blameless. The sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. And that's our lot. That's our privilege as believers to shine in the world. And so this is a wonderful commentary of these two people's lives. And then we find something is brought up to us in verse 7. And they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren and they both were now well stricken in years. And so they were, had, were advanced in age. And when the Bible says that someone is barren, it means that they could never have children, right? Uh, we would use the word, I suppose, the word sterile today. So in other words, Elizabeth was ne- had never been able to have a child. And now it was past the time for her um, to have a child. So, in that culture, in that society, in that country, in those days, for a married woman not to have children, not to even have one child, that was considered a curse from God. That was considered an affliction. That was considered an infirmity. 
I, I don't know if we can. I know. I know. There's people I've talked to women like that in our country. So are there, there are those that really want to have children, and and there's some that want to and can't, so on. But anyway, but that was especially true in that country. In fact, you go all the way back, and I find it's very interesting that there is a thread a through the Bible of people that God called and was going to use greatly and did use greatly um, probably the first one is Abram or later Abraham Abraham and Sarai you know Abram and Sarah their name Sarai their names are later changed to Abraham and Sarah but the Bible says that Sarai was barren but God of course enabled them when Abraham was about 99 and Sarah was 90 they had Isaac. Well then, Isaac married Rebekah. The Bible says Isaac entreated the Lord. He prayed to God for his wife because she, couldn't, she didn't have any children. And then Jacob loved Rachel. Rachel was barren. So what's the point? Well, the point is God allows these things in people's lives to show his power. You know, he has all of these things under control. He was willing to allow Abraham to go 99 years. Of course, they kind of, you know, they remember Sarah and Sarah and Abram conspired together. It was Sarah's idea. They're going to help God along. We, we, you know, that really doesn't count. I mean, it counts, but you know what I mean? When God said to Abraham later to, to sacrifice Isaac, he referred to Isaac as Abraham's only begotten son. So really, Ishmael. He's a, he doesn't count really because he was wrong. It was, that was a sinful thing when he came along. But so many times, and there's a wonderful Psalm 113, verse 9, he maketh the barren woman to, to, to rejoice and to be the mother of children. He maketh the barren woman to keep house. There, I got it. He maketh the barren woman, barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. So God does things like that. And so, really, in our lives, we need to take a look at circumstances and things in our life, maybe not pleasant, and realize God has put it, allowed it for a reason. right? And, it's, and, and so, many times, thinking back to Abram and Sarah, hundreds of years before this, they compromised. They didn't hold on to their values and their convictions, and so they said, we're going to help God out. And that's the whole, our society is, all, is full of situation ethics where the end justifies the mean. No, 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 not in the word of God. It's never right to do wrong, right? Never right to do wrong. And so they had no children, okay? So those are, those, those are the people involved right, right here at the very beginning. Well, then secondly, the priestly ministry. We already talked about a little bit, but let's see, let's look into a little bit further because I did go back and do a little bit of looking, researching back in the Old Testament, and they found out that these priests, according to their course, they had one particular ministry, one particular responsibility. Notice what it was here. Verse 8, it says, And it came to pass that while, while he, that's Zacharias, executed the priest's office before God, there it is again, before God, he kept that in mind, in the order of his course, his lot, according to custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple 
of the Lord. So that was his special privilege. He would, he would burn incense in the temple and there was an altar of incense. And so he, he, he was doing that. It was his time to do that. And uh, so there were 24 courses and there were 12 months in a year. So every person had like, you know, like half a month, two weeks. And so he did, so it says this, he, he went in, verse 10, the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. So here is, here is Zacharias, he's, he's burning incense, offering incense on the altar of incense. The people are gathered outside that area and they're praying right, at the time of incense. And so the two went together. So there were times in the temple you know, set apart for different things. You know, there, there was the morning and evening sacrifice and different things that they had to do. There was also the time of incense, and so there was a time of prayer. Now, just think about that. In, um, in Acts chapter 3, in verse 1, it says that uh, now Peter and John went up together into the temple, that's the temple of Jerusalem, at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. So that would be the three about 3 o'clock, in the afternoon was the time of prayer. So they had specific times of prayer, just like most Bible-believing churches today have prayer meeting, all right? So there's a biblical basis for that, all right? So they're praying up there. And of course, God, as sovereign, he's, he knows all about that, and his plan is, is getting ready to unfold. His plan of redemption. And so... While the people are praying, while Zacharias is offering the incense there, verse 11 says, here's the, the, the heavenly visitor, there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So here's, you know, Zacharias is doing his priestly duty, he's doing exactly what God called him to do, God ordained him to do, and now an angel comes and appears. And verse 19 identifies this angel as Gabriel. We'll talk about that more when we, when we get to that part of the chapter. And here it is again, folks. How does a, how does a person respond when they really see a real angel? How do they respond? Here it is. Verse 12, when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. In other words, he was seized with terror. He was troubled. He was shook up. He was agitated. Because real angels, that's, that's how they are. They're bright. And they're shining. And they're intimidating in appearance. All right, so, and there's, there's another way you can mark that down. Maybe you're not keeping track, but... Uh, every time somebody saw an angel in the Bible, this was their reaction. Even Mary, later on in the chapter. So it's not like, hey, call up Hollywood. I'm like, I just saw an angel. I think I'll make a movie about it. I'll write a book about it. You'll embrace the light and all that nonsense that's been written over the years. I have one answer when somebody tells me they saw the light or these people that write these books. I take him to 1 Timothy chapter 6 that says God dwells in the light that no man can see nor hath seen. No man can approach. So I don't know what you saw, but you didn't see God and you didn't see an angel. All right? But it is interesting that in 2 Corinthians it says that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. So if you see the devil, 
you're not going to see a red character with a pitchfork and horns. That's exactly what he wants you to believe. They want you, the devil wants everybody to think he's a joke, he's a, he's a comic book character. He's an angel of light. Angel of light. And I've told you, I've said this before, some of you may never heard this, but I was in the hospital visiting a guy going through the gospel. He absolutely refused to receive the gospel. He said, I don't need that. I don't need you to tell me about Jesus. I had a heart thing and I had I died on the operating table and I saw the light and I saw God and I saw all these things. So I know I'm I know I'm gonna be in heaven because of that. Don't tell me. I told him anyway. I showed him the verse. The Bible says right here, nobody has ever seen that light. I don't care. I saw it. That's how we are. That's where we are today, folks. We're living in an experience and an emotional society. Don't tell me what the Bible says. I've experienced it. Well, I could go on and on, with, with, but that's not the point of stories. But when somebody really and sees an angel, I gotta say this too. Keep your place. I want to show you something. Hebrews chapter thirteen. People have taken this verse not only out left field, all the way out of the ballpark. They're not even on earth. But in Hebrews chapter thirteen. Listen, look at what, this is what it says. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. The Bible says, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So my, I better do this because I might get to see an angel. That's, that's the way people look at this. It's not what it's saying at all. It said, you know, in the past, some have. <laughs> some have. We, we kind of get the idea that every day in the Old Testament they saw angels and, no. And they think, oh, boy, every day in the Old Testament God did all these things. No. In fact, I, we wonder why. Why did Israel forget so soon? Well, I think because God didn't do this all the time. They probably went through weeks and months and maybe years without God showing any miraculous stuff. And they couldn't, they just couldn't follow the Bible. Just and, and Solomon wrote, there's nothing new under the sun. Same today. Pe people just can't take this. It's not enough. We want more. Have you ever had somebody tell you that? If I had it, well, I was going to say if I had a dollar, I'd be rich. But I've had people over the years, it's not enough. Preacher, that's not enough. I need God to write it on the sky. I need my grandmother to come back and tell me. And I've heard all those things. One lady said, I need God to send somebody. I said, Hello? <laughs> my word here. <laughs> it's like, no. But, uh, but see, that, that's the thing about well, anyway, mankind. We're marvelous. Aren't we? we were great creatures. We'll take one little thing here and build our whole life. You know, I hope I see one someday. So, of course, it doesn't help when they got these programs on. Touched by an angel and highway to heaven and... Oh, well, it's a highway, all right, but it's not to heaven. But anyway, let's go back to Luke. Uh, because John, or yeah, John, Zacharias really did see an angel. He saw a real one. And he was troubled. <clears throat> and fear fell upon him. He was seized. And you know you know how the chapters of Luke unfold. Chapter 2, of course, the shepherds saw the angels too. And they, you know, they didn't call the camera crew to film it and all that. 
you know, that, so they were so afraid. I mean, they were just ter- they're ter- terrorized. Anyway, so fear fell upon him. It's back in Luke 1, chapter 1, verse 13. But the angel said unto him, Fear not. Well, there's one of those times again, fear not, is, pro- is, is probably the, the most often recorded commandment in the Bible. Fear not. And of course, how many of them are in response to angels? Somebody seeing an angel, they're scared to death, and the angel says, fear not. By the way, one of the reasons that people feared when they saw angels was because of obviously their awesome appearance, but also because angels in the Bible are, are often associated with judgment, not warm and fuzziness. <laughs> like one angel of God killed 185,000 Assyrian troops in the days of Hezekiah. That's, that's pretty tough. I mean, that's, pretty, that's better than Samson. He killed 1,000 with a jawbone. But anyway, so they're awesome creatures. But he came like angels do. When an angel does come, they come with a message from God. And I, I'm sorry if I got all carried away ranting about angels. I, I don't want to miss the main point. When an angel is sent from God, he's got a message. Or he's got a judgment to carry out. I, you know. So he said, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Right? So, and again, I, I don't want to speculate, but I, I, I don't think this is speculation, because Zacharias and Elizabeth were way beyond the years, especially Elizabeth, way beyond childbearing. Elizabeth was barren, and I believe that they had prayed. I believe Zacharias had absolutely prayed for a son. Right? But I can't help but wonder at his age if they just maybe had stopped praying for him. Because he seemed really surprised. Right? But he said, Thy prayer is heard. So God heard. And when the Bible says, Thy prayer is heard, understand that means God heard it and he's about to answer it. Okay? And so he says, Thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son. So here's the, here's the, he said it's going to be a miracle in that God is going to give you, but especially he's going to give Elizabeth the ability to have to conceive and to carry a child and deliver one. So when I said earlier that the birth of John the Baptist would be supernatural, it was. In that God gave them the ability to conceive a child naturally, so to speak. Whereas the birth of Jesus was a miracle because it was the virgin birth and no human, no man was involved. So she, thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness. And many shall rejoice at his birth. And we're going we're gonna to see that as it unfolds. But notice the angel says to him, Thou shalt have joy and gladness. It's interesting. The word joy is the idea of an inward joy, a delight. The word, the idea of gladness is outward. It's the idea of great joy and abundant delight. Obviously, they're going to be thrilled, is what the angels say. Many shall rejoice. 
at his birth. And at the end of chapter 1, when John is born, it's exactly what happens. There's a, there's a lot of rejoicing going on, right? Even before, well, before he's born, before Jesus is born, there's joy. Because, all right, so, now let's take a look at some other things. We're going we're to go down to verse 17, and then we're gonna, we'll cut it off for today. But here's what it says. Many shall rejoice at his birth, the end of verse 14. And verse 15 says this. Here's the angel now, still talking about John. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. So in other words, God is going is to consider him great. And many years later, Jesus Christ is going to say, of, there's not the, of the children of men, there hath not arisen a greater prophet than John the Baptist. So Jesus Christ himself said, he's at the top. John the Baptist. Right? He said more. We'll get to that someday. Um, he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. Shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. So he's going to be a, he's going to be a, a man of purity. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. Now, I, I, and I don't think, I've, I've looked, I can't find anybody else in the Bible, any other human, where God says that, where God's message about him is he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from, from his womb, from before he's even born. Under the influence, under the control of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting that, notice what the angel said, that he'll neither, he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost. What, is it, what did Paul write about that? Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So see there, you can't be, you can't be, you can't be filled with wine and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the Bible, the angel says, you know, this is the kind of man that John's going to be. He shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. So I want to mention quickly three things about this ministry of John the Baptist. Number one, it would be a spirit-filled ministry, even before he was in the ministry. <laughs> from the, even as a baby in the womb, he would already manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? Second, it would be an effective ministry. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. So he was going to obviously be a, have a preaching ministry. And through his ministry, many were going to turn. Many of the children of Israel shall he turn, convert to the Lord their God. And again, we'll let this, we'll let this play out more as we go through the book. And then number three, a powerful ministry. A prophetic powerful ministry. He, and he shall go before him, that is before the Lord. He would be the front, the forerunner, not the forerunner, the forerunner, the announcer, the herald. And later on, it's a, we'll, I love what John said. You've got to love it because the people all there came and said, are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? Are you? And he says, I'm not. And they said, what are, who are you then? What are you? we got to, you know, for some reason they thought they had to know. He said, I am the voice. I'm a voice. Voice of one crying over us makes straight the ways of the Lord. He said, I'm a voice. That's all you need to know. And that's, wow, how, what a great example. What a great lesson for us. We, we can be a voice for God. But he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias. Again, that's the New Testament spelling for Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children 
and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so that would be his ministry. It would be a ministry of preparation. And then, of course, John the Baptist would have the great privilege of baptizing Jesus later and then standing before the multitudes and saying, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. That would be John's privilege. And then John would later say, He must increase. I must decrease. And John said to the folks, You know what? You, from the very beginning, you know I never tried to make a name for myself. Never, never, never tried, never tried to exalt myself. I'm a voice. Preparing the way of the Lord. Yeah, he was a powerful voice. Jesus referred to him as a burning and shining light. And so, great man of God. He shall be great in the sight of the Lord. Verse 15, he was. He would be. We'll see that as you go through. And so, that's just getting started. And you know, probably, we're, we're going to begin, Lord willing, well, not next Sunday, but two weeks, um, that Zacharias doubted it. Didn't, didn't, didn't believe it was going to happen. But you know what? That's a good reminder, too, <clears throat> when God determines to move and act, nothing can stop him, not even the unbelief or the one that's chosen to, to get things rolling, so to speak. Now, we're supposed to believe. We're, we're supposed to trust. We're not supposed to doubt, but we're human. And so we do, and we fear at times. God is faithful. God is faithful. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we remain unfaithful, or if we believe not yet, he is faithful. And God was faithful. And the angel was faithful. And you know that John, I mean, Zacharias kind of had to pay for the sin of unbelief by being struck dumb or mute for nine months. Anyway. So, but think about this. Remember this. When God determines to move and to act, nothing can stop him. The first two chapters of Luke record some of the greatest events in the history of the world. And I have to confess, when I was in school, I really didn't like history. Um, I didn't like memorizing all those dates. And it, but, but when I got older, got a chance to teach at a Christian school, that, that changed the whole thing. Got to teach history from a Christian perspective. What a difference. Anyway, um, but anyway, Lord willing, in a couple weeks, um, we will continue with more of these marvelous prophecies of Luke chapter 1. And so, beloved, we'll close with this. We just, please be encouraged. We need to all be encouraged. Trust in the Lord. Trust in God. Believe His Word. No matter what's going on, believe His Word. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. His word is sure. The foundation of God standeth sure. The Lord knoweth them that are his. Then it says, And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. We need to be like Zacharias and Elizabeth, walking before the Lord, blameless, in the in the all the commandments, ordinances of the, of the Lord, blameless. And we need to keep we need to pray. Keep praying. Keep following his word. Keep being salt and light to those around us. That's what we can do. We can do that. 
And I've mentioned before, and there's that simple old song, I don't think I know any other words, but I remember how it ends. The darker the night, the brighter the light when we walk with him. The darker the night, the brighter the light. Doesn't get much darker than it was right here, right? In fact, it would say later, Matthew's <coughs> commentary was after Jesus was born, after he started his ministry, in Matthew chapter 4, it says, the people that walked in darkness have seen great light. They that, that, that dwell in this, the shadow of death, upon them the light hath, hath the light shine. So, I mean, it's, it's nice and bright outside, but that's physically, we're living in a dark world. And But uh, when I thought about Bruce this morning, in Sunday school, talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, I thought about Meshach and Amokia. I mean, that's how it is. It's dark. But anyway, God's able. We're the light. Jesus said to his disciples, you're the light of the world. So we need that to let that light shine however we can. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time we could have in singing these great, great hymns. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, God, how, what a blessing they are to our services. Thank you for the word of God and thank you for the Holy Spirit and his work. And most of all today, we thank thee for our, our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Lord, help us to walk in the light of the word, to be faithful. And we just commit this day unto thee. Bless these dear ones. Help them to be faithful. Bless us throughout the day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's take our hymn books. 401. 401. Sweet are the promises. Kind is the word. Right? 401. Where he leads, I'll follow. 401. Where he leads, I'll follow. Sweet are the promises. I'll tell you what. Zacharias got some great promises in our text today. He's here to let's say we have we have all kinds of promises. Peter refers to one of the great and precious promises. Oh, we, need to, we, need to, we need to think about those. Oh my, so many. All right, let's sing these, let's sing these, these, these uh, verses, uh, all three verses, where he leads. A follow, and as always, if we can be a help to anybody, we would love to do that. Um, with the word of God and prayer. So please keep that in mind. Sweet are the promises, kind is the word, dearer far than any message man ever heard. Good was the mind of Christ, sinless and seed, he that made example is and pattern for me. Thank you.